How's it going? Great. How are you? Good. How are things looking? Uh, they're looking pretty great. What? Yeah. What outside a... stacking wood, so my um, I'm, you know, doing my man of the people thing here with my. Uh, <laughs> it's freezing up here. We've got a big storm coming in. Yeah, I bet. I lived in Massachusetts for about a year, and I grew up in Southern California, so I wasn't prepared for the New England winter. Um, You're in it, California now, right? We're in Portland, Oregon. Oh yeah. Okay. West Coast. I did. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a groovy background you got going on there. Is that all your artwork? Yes. Cool. A lot um, of different things, paintings from different periods of my life and, uh, all the rest of it. So you, where are you guys in the house or we're in, uh, we're in Dan's apartment right now. Um, okay. I, have a, I have a house about 20 minutes away and, um, yeah, we're just outside of Portland in Clackamas. Um, Good. But <clears throat> well, I'm all set. If 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 you are, um, how long do you want to go for? As, as long yeah. as you want, or as short as you want. I mean, well, I, I I've got no time constraint. It's 3 p.m. here, and I should be wrapping this up at the very latest by around uh, well before four o'clock my time within the hour. Okay, sure, cool, great. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, it's funny, I. Admittedly, I didn't know who you were a month ago, and then, you know, this capital nonsense hop happened, and my buddy Dan here sends me this video of you kind of like laying into it and offering some perspective. And uh, yeah, since then, I've you know done some research and I've heard you speak, um, listened to you speak a couple hours probably on YouTube, and yeah, I've, you're like my new favorite person. I can't reach, oh, wait well, to read good. your book. That, that- and excited to speak with you. Give me five minutes and we'll change that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. You, uh, I, I feel uh, very aligned with a lot of the things that you have to say. So. Well, that's good. And um, so tell me when we're, we're going to record. Yeah, we're going. We're rolling, whenever, whenever you're ready. We're rolling now. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I don't know what you know about what I've done in terms of my writing and speaking and all that other than what you picked up on YouTube. So fire away. And if you have some questions or you want me to set something up and explain anything from my perspective, let me know. Yeah. Um, well, you know, one thing Andrew and I have talked a lot about on this podcast is, uh, just kind of how gross American Christianity is and the whole evangelical movement. And I think that we have like, we, we know that it's messed up, but we don't know all the ins and outs of like how it became so massive and really infected yeah. the country. And I, mean, I grew up in that world. Dan grew up Catholic. I'm no longer in that world. I'm sort of like you where I'm still, you know, I could never go full atheist. I'm still spiritual. I still really dig a lot of what Jesus had to say, but mostly I'm just sort of here for the mystery. And, um, but it is so interesting living in a country that where, you know, 40% of people are sort of enraptured in this strange culture. But you seem yeah. to have a, you know, a, a strong, um, a strong understanding of sort of the context and the history behind how we got there. And I don't, I think that we've lost that, especially my generation doesn't quite understand how yeah. did this all start. Well, you know, I wish I didn't have an understanding of it because it, if I if I did not, it would mean that I would have started my own life differently. You know, back in the 1960s and 70s, my father, who was an evangelist preacher, uh, uh, became very, very famous. Um, interestingly enough, we were in Switzerland. He's an American, but he started a mission of missionary effort over there in 1947 after the Second World War, a couple of years after the war, he went over to work with young people in bombed out cities. Mom and dad chose Switzerland to live in because the trains and everything were still working. It had been neutral in the war and so hadn't been decimated like France and Belgium, Holland, Germany, mm-hmm. the UK and so forth. I was born in 1952. A couple of years later, uh, dad started his own organization with my mother, very humble, small beginnings in our home called Labrie Fellowship. Labrie means the shelter. And really what it amounted to in the early years was my sisters going to the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, bringing home university student age people for the weekend to meet their parents and to stay in the mission and have discussions and Bible studies and all the rest. And what grew from that in the in the 1950s and 60s was you know the way i would put it i know this sounds weird was was a kind of a uh, fundamentalist hippie commune 
Mm-hmm. And that sounds counterintuitive, but actually, if you think about the 1960s, there were a lot of people backpacking in Europe. There were people traveling to India to go to ashrams. The Beatles were all into Hindu spirituality. Buddhism was on the rise. Europe was full of, first of all, the beat generation and then the hippies, hitchhiking, taking trains, getting your rail passes. Mom and dad had a reputation for um, tremendous hospitality, open home. You know, I grew up stepping over sleeping bags in the hall. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to go to the kitchen to get a snack, there'd be 10 people. Right. It was a service organization. Yeah, who were there for the weekend. So it was an open home. And, and the interesting thing is, although our family went far to the right at the end, um, in those days, if you had come into Labrie, you'd say, these are Christians. They believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. They're sort of fundamentalist in their Bible views. But, and here was the big difference with my parents. Francis and Anita Schaefer were also deeply into culture, art, music. You know, dad was giving lectures on what Bob Dylan's lyrics meant before people at Rolling Stone magazine knew of anything about <laughs> sure. it. You know, he was doing lectures on the philosophy of Woody Allen's early films before anybody was taking them seriously. So here was this very cool evangelical Christian in the mountains who didn't push anybody away. Gay people could show up. Uh, we had a lot of uh, African-American black people, but also black African-Africans who were in Europe at the time studying. I was just on the phone yesterday with a guy in England who's now my age who was saying, you know, your father was the first white American who ever made me feel like an equal. This was dad in the 50s and 60s. Right. He was an evangelical, but a real Christian in the sense of of, of welcoming, non-judgmental, and right. so forth. There's really deep acceptance that Jesus totally talked about. and Exactly. Yeah. And then in addition to that, you know, he'd be leading discussions and people would be asking him about the Italian Renaissance and Northern European art. His best friend, Dr. Ruckmacher, was writing all the ja- the, the, the LP vinyl jackets for the Decca jazz label. Uh, you know, people like Miles Davis and mm-hmm. all the rest of that were familiar, not only to our family, but to one degree of separation with people we knew. Um, I think it was 1968. Um, you know, we had people coming to Labrie who were involved in the beginning of the kind of idealistic part of the drug movement. Timothy Leary, the guy who did the whole beginnings with oh, LSD, sure. came yeah. and stayed with us. Wow. And at the same time, Billy Graham, the evangelist, would visit. And I knew his son, Franklin Graham, <laughs> yeah, get who them then went in, on. And those be- two in the same room? That'd be a trip. Not in the same room, <laughs> but in the same place. Yeah. And, and, and that, you know, coming to sit, talk to Francis Schaefer, Billy Graham, to figure out how to reach young people with the message of Jesus when, you know, evangelicals in America were just, were totally having a generation gap, you know, between them and the, the sort of Woodstock generation, not my father. So... That was my early teenagerhood mm-hmm. when Roe v. Wade came along and abortion was legalized in, in, in 1972, or was it 1973? 72, I think. Um, we had made a film series called Whatever Happened to the Human Race that was um, about the abortion issue as a follow-up to another series that I had produced with my dad uh, called How Should We Then Live, which was a culture, art, music, philosophy series, not to the left or to the right, just from an evangelical point of view, but an, a scholarly one. Um, at the end of that film series, we had an episode on abortion and Roe v. Wade as an example of what dad was calling judicial overreach. And even then, he could have been from the left. In other words, big governments getting too big, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're being manipulated, where are the checks and balances? And at that point, it couldn't have gone other way. Then an old family friend of ours, Dr. C. Everett Koop, who a few years later became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General, came and visited my parents, and he had known them since the, the 30s, and he was the Surgeon-in-Chief. It was really hot on the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. Talked me in my early 20s into making a second series on what he called the life issues. And I did it for two reasons. First of all, I had just gotten married as a teenager, gotten my Mm -hmm. girlfriend pregnant. We had this little girl. We would have been perfect candidates to abort her. And so it was very personal. on that, I'm really curious. I know that you, yeah, you got your girlfriend pregnant at like 17, right? Yeah. You're still married. But what was it like, you know, for me growing up in sort of like evangelical Christianity in a mega church in Colorado. So it's really sort of this like, Sure. You know, it's a serious institution now. Like for my generation, the 
uh, hyper importance of like purity and not having sex before marriage was so stressed that like I can't imagine what my parents would have done. And my parents are lovely people, but I just can't imagine how they would have handled me getting my girlfriend pregnant at 17, let alone even knowing that we were be doing anything sexual. Was, sure. was that a, a rough thing for your parents or was it sort of in a time before where they were kind of like, well, I mean, you're 17 and things happen, you're hormonal and like this happens. So d as long as you get married, yeah. it's fine. It was the, it was the second. It, yeah, it was the second. It wasn't fine in the sense that they were, they were uh, very concerned. I mean, a sure. young teen couple with a pregnancy, but there was nothing about, oh, you have to get married or how could you do this to us? Nothing like that. My father, you got to understand, this was the 1960s. At mm -hmm. the end of the 60s, actually, it was 1970 that we got married. But 69, we met in 69. And Jeannie was this, uh, you know, the only way to describe her was a sort of a San Francisco hippie princess who had, mm -hmm. was on, in Europe with her older sister who was getting a graduation present from, from Berkeley, graduating from Berkeley. And Jeannie had just graduated high school. They were taking trains around Europe, knew nothing about Labrie, were not evangelicals, had no clue. And they were at Labrie because Pam, Jeannie's sister, was Mary Dare's friend. And Mary Dare at that time was Joan Baez's best friend and would tour with her and had come to Labrie to check it out because Joan Baez wanted to come and visit us. Mm -hmm. And so these two girls walked in and I met Jeannie and we felt, I fell wildly in love with her and have been for 50 years, by the way. We just had our anniversary last June. Nice. And um, it was a crazy, crazy time anyway, but in, in the context of Labrie, it was, it, you know, it was all, it wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll at Labrie, but that was the culture. And those were the people dad and mom were ministering to. So sure. I guess you could reverse it. If you had been an old friend of my dad's and a contemporary, you could have said to him, Hey, Francis, you know, you got a, a teenage son growing up in a household full of dope smoking hippies who have, some of whom are finding Jesus, many of whom are not. Um, you know, your son's your, your your son is is into Jimi Hendrix and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, what could possibly go wrong? Here's a kid who's 15, 16 with 18, 19, 20 year olds doing this kind of lifestyle and dad's reaching out to them. So Sorry. I was part of that environment. And in that context, my parents were incredibly kind and very, very supportive. And when we did decide to get married, I think Jeannie was about six months pregnant by that time. Um, they gave us a place to stay, and we just lived in the basement of one of the ministry chalets there mm -hmm. uh, in the mountains for the first five, six years of our life together. And if it hadn't been for the support of that evangelical community, we would have done what every young couple that gets married that young with a baby does it. Everything would have just fallen apart. It was an incredibly difficult time for us totally. trying to get used to those sort of responsibilities. But we had this, we got the best of both worlds because we had this kind of incredible community support. And then, you know, looking back on that, it was so different than the evangelical environment you were describing a minute ago that um, one of the reasons later, fast forward 30 years, that I dr totally bailed and got out of the whole thing was, um, well, not 30 years, about 15 years from then, fast forward to that point was the ugliness of the fundamentalist community and the evangelicals that we were already starting to work with on the pro-life circuit and mm -hmm. their kind of judgmental meanness, anti-gay, anti-women, the whole bit. It was so different than what I grew up with right. that in, in a weird way, it was my parents' fault that I left evangelicalism because nothing after the debris measured up to what I thought we were into. And as I got out into the big American God business with all these liars and crooks and con artists, you know, many, 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 many Donald Trumps, as it were, running ministries. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's no, it's no wonder the evangelicals got on with him because they're all like him. Do you think that's it's, what their ministries are like? Do you think it's power that sort of corrupted this? You know, how do we, how do we get these religious structures that are so far from the core message? You look at the early church. You look at what Jesus actually taught. I mean, even early on, you have Paul sort of like already forming something where you're like. Uh, I don't think Jesus was about yeah. that. You're already missing it. But like, what is it in the, you know, from a philosopher's perspective, what do you think it is that has, has spawned this, um, unbelievable worldwide, you know, organization that is so far from its roots? Yeah. I mean, if you look at evangelicalism today, it's inseparable from white nationalism or Christian nationalism. And what this has to do with Christianity is zero, but 
sadly, there's plenty of historical precedent because, and I know this is always used too much and Hitler and Nazi Germany, but the fact of the matter is, if it hadn't been for the Lutheran Church backed by evangelicals on one hand and the Roman Catholic Church in Germany backed by a pro-fascist pope in the 20s and 30s, um, Hitler never would have come to power. And it was the same thing. Churchmen, just like the Republican Party today, fooled themselves into thinking that we can use this guy and not be used. He'll defend our rights. Right. Secularism is is secularism is attacking us. Mm-hmm. You know, in those days, evolution was not a new theory, but people were still getting used to the idea that maybe it wasn't all created in six days and so forth. Everybody's on the defensive. Sure. Um, and it's very much the same thing now. Unfortunately, with people like Franklin Graham, Ralph Reed, Jeffress, and all these other evangelical leaders, they've completely sold out not just their evangelical faith, but even their patriotism. You know, not one of these guys has stood up and called out, for instance, the storming of the Capitol. In fact, the only thing Franklin Graham said was to post a series of tweets and Facebook posts where he criticized the ten Republican congressmen, Congress people who voted. Mm-hmm. to impeach, saying they betrayed Trump like Judas. Oh my God. And so in, instead of even take, instead of even drawing the line on the storming of the Capitol, he's still going along. So you have to say, look, either one of two things happened, and I won't judge any individual, although I have my ideas about individuals because I knew them. Either at one point they were sincere and like the old frog took story, getting warmed up a degree at a time in the mm-hmm. water until it boils to death, they gradually lost their faith and it was replaced by greed and a lust for power and, mm. and, and not wanting to lose face and feeling aggrieved and victimized by the secular culture. And they wound up in a place they didn't start. Or they were flakes and con artists from the start. And I knew plenty of those and right. still know who they were. The former is so interesting because it's like, uh, if it's the former in, in the frog scenario, you have yeah. people that have basically slowly turned into con artists, but we are so good at lying to ourselves and rationalizing yeah. and telling ourselves that like, no, but I'm still like, I'm still praying. I'm still connected to the Lord or whatever. And it's like, yeah, yeah but what are your fruits? What are your actions? Um, I have two follow up questions for you that I would love to hear you sort of riff on. One is like, what the, how did we even get to a point or how did Christianity ever even get to a point where this like importance of like evangelizing, you know, compared to other religions, which are very much not evangelizing. I mean, Judaism, they're like, you. we actually d- would prefer you not to join. If you want <laughs> right. to join, you're going to have to jump through a lot of fucking hoops. So yeah. how did how did evangelizing become such a, th- such a thing at all? And how does that relate to, like, you know, I, I really wish that people could recognize that, like, clearly... There's a lot of overlap between a lot of religions and, and in the world of spirituality, there's a lot of like core truths that uh, sure. when you've had a mystical experience, you sort of know that it rings true. Why can't people just like let up off of each other and just let people believe whatever the fuck they want to believe? And why is it so important to get people onto the onto the American Christian team? Yeah, well, if you want a little history lesson, it goes back into the Reformation. When, when the Roman Catholic Church split from the Greek Orthodox Eastern community, first of all, and then the the West had the split with Martin Luther from the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Then everything became a theological discussion. So it was no longer like Judaism that you're born into the church, you're baptized as a child, you grow up in the faith. It's not a question of personally accepting Jesus. It's just a cultural as well as religious faith. And it's not so much even faith, it's who you are. Um, so after you have all these massive splits within the Christian community and Protestantism splits away and then itself divides into literally about 53,000 denominations worldwide, let alone all the individual churches and states Mm -hmm. and so forth, then everything becomes about an argument about how you interpret the Bible. There's no core of belief that's accepted. So if you had had been born in in 11th century Europe or in uh, 5th century Constantinople in the Eastern church, into a Christian family, you would have been baptized the same way as Jews are circumcised. And it wasn't a question of any kind of, you have to accept Jesus or he's going to hate you and you're going to hell. It was just simply, this is where you live, this is who you are, and you grow up in the faith and you're either a pious believer who practices their faith or you're not. But it wasn't a question of personal interpretation. There was a body of knowledge that was accepted as this is who we are. As soon as it becomes a theological debate between different groups, then you're either in or out. And of course, then you demonize your theological opponents and pretty soon you have wars of religion in Europe 
with, with in Luther's time and all the rest of it. And then you and, and, and on and on it goes. So the U.S. in a way, I know that people won't like this, but if the historic church, the ancient church of, of Rome and the ancient mm-hmm. church of Constantinople in the East, if that's Christianity, then there are no Christians in America except a few Orthodox Christians and Catholics who were traditional, not in the theological sense, but who are just got this with their mother's milk. It was cultural. We turned it into this big, hot and heavy debate of personal faith and argument that you got to believe right or you're out. Now, in my family, you know, I wrote this novel, Portofino and Saving Grandma and, and Zermatt, this trilogy about Calvin Becker, who grows up in this evangelical family. And as he gets older, his coming of age and so on, one of the things he notices is his family is in always in another church split. And they keep adding an initials to the church. First, it's the you know PCC USA, then PCCCC. By the time you finish these novels, it's down to him, his dad, who's a pastor, his mom, his sisters, and, and he's not even sure about his sisters. The circle just keeps getting more and more exclusive and narrow. And you see that in evangelical colleges and churches. You know, we're the one. Um, there's no sense of a shared traditional faith right. that this is who we are without embarrassment. It's an individual decision. The thing that you have to understand about why they say these groups all went for Trump, because that question comes up, it's not just power. And I'd like to be really careful the way I put this and tell me if I've made myself clear and ask questions if I haven't, because I want to be clear. You could not come up with a group of people who would be more indoctrinated and ready to accept an authoritarian flake like Trump than a white evangelical American Christian in the 21st century. What do I mean by that? They are raised from their mother's breast to look at the world as them, (laughs) as opposed to us, Uh, And they tell you things that are lies. mm -hmm. Trump didn't invent fake news. Our evangelical mothers did. What they're telling you in high school is not right, sweetie. God created the world. It's not evolution. What they're saying about sexuality and homosexuality is not right. These people choose to sin. Otherwise, God would have created homosexuality, and we know that's impossible. So whatever biology says or neuropsychology or brain scans, forget it. We have the truth. So you've got a whole group of people with their own radio stations, their own TV, their own book publishers, mm-hmm. their own churches, their own homeschooling that then feeds into Christian academies, that then feeds into Christian colleges. Right. And then they can go work for a corporation run by Christians who won't yeah. pay for contraception. Or a production company that's going to create left behind. <laughs> right. And before there was the Fox News bubble, yeah. there was us. Sure, we sure, created sure. these little this little bubble. So all they had to do is turn Trump into a matter of faith. So it had nothing to do with is what he's saying is true. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And, and the New York Times and science says no. In fact, it's the other way around. The very fact he stood up and called all this stuff fake news, but I hear you and I listen to you and they're all liars. That is the evangelical model. And he just turned it into a personality cult. But that's what it is. So if you look at these mega churches, that's what they are. They're all personality cards built around, you know, Billy Bob who starts this church. And then if he sleeps with the secretary and gets fired, half the church drifts away and they do something else. They're personality cults. They're not religions. Yeah. So that pattern is the evangelical pattern. I'm, uh, I'm curious, Frank, if you've seen, if you've ever seen a president play that better than Trump did to play to that evangelical group. No one's even come close because I've known some of these guys personally. I knew both Bush presidents and I met Ronald Reagan once, but I but my the Fords were family friends. In fact, Mike Ford, uh, President Ford's son, was staying with us and his wife, Gail, was babysitting my baby when I was a teen father. My, my, my parents would stay in the White House when they came to Washington. You know, we were really close to that power structure. The funny thing is these guys used the evangelical vote, but they were using you know, just like you would appeal to the unions and anybody else. But the big change came with Ronald Reagan, who was pro-choice and legalized abortion in California, and then officially changed his position in order to get the Roman Catholic conservative vote and the evangelical fundamentalist vote once those things became issues. And when that happened, you started a new pattern. And that is, then it became a question of who's using whom, and the evangelicals use these issues for fundraising and access to power. And the Republicans realized that with a few key litmus tests, we don't like gays, we don't like feminists, we don't like abortion, they could corral the religious right 
mm-hmm. uh, and not on any theological basis, but simply political litmus tests. And then it became a very kind of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, you know, I'll call in my support for a pro-life march and you bring me, you know, 60 million voters next time. The thing is, that was all honed through those years. And then you have the sort of racist reaction to Trump and all that, I mean, to Obama coming with Trump. But the big deal was that evangelical leaders like Franklin Graham, Ralph Freed, Jeffress actually went to Trump and literally made a deal with him, as did the Federalist Society for um, the for the the judges he would nominate, just saying, you know, you're not into policy, but we are. Here's the list of judges. And that's all he nominated was the Federalist Society list, 200 of them. Ralph Reed comes, if you say this and this and this about abortion, we don't care how many whores you, you have and, you know, you pay off or what you do. We don't care whose pussy you grab when. What we care about is this, this and this, and you do this and we will deliver. And they right. did. And he did. Yeah. So never in my experience of the guys I knew in politics personally, let alone read about, has there been anyone who comes close to selling out everything the way Trump did uh, for power. And never in my day as an evangelical wannabe leader, sidekick, nepotistic, greedy, young uh, idiot with my father in those days, you know, even in our worst moments, we never came close to making deals with people who came looking in anything like Donald Trump. You know, literally, my dad would have thrown up if he met him. I mean, all the all the earlier evangelical leaders. I would say even Jerry Falwell Sr. would have hated his guts. Sure. Just because on those the basis people, of how, how those people you know, had decent morals, at least. I mean, my parents are in their 60s and yeah. they're a part of the like, you know, conservative evangelical Christian community in Orange County, which is very conservative. But they're still sort of fish out of water yeah. down there because even them, they're like, they couldn't get behind Trump. They can't get behind all this nonsense. You no. know, if I, when I was down in Orange County, I had a lady call me a fucking pussy for wearing a mask in Target in the middle of the pandemic. And she's proudly yeah. not wearing one. And I'm like, what the fuck was that? Like, it's so different than in Portland. And yeah. I think the scary thing that and the Capitol riot or I, I call it like riot, protest, insurrection, coup. It was all four of those things. There were sure. four groups of people doing all four of those things. All four are true. But yeah. Like for folks like my parents who still consider themselves Christian and I think are still relatively on the conservative side, but have a lot of love and compassion and are not tied to like these really extreme evangelical yeah. leaders. They're they're more on the spiritual end. Um, they look at the rest yeah. of this country and then like people like, you know, we live in Portland, which is like the least religious city in America. And all of these people are looking at those people and being like, who the fuck are these people? And how did we get here? Yeah. And what do we do about it now that we have this huge base of people who no longer believe in democracy, th- are claiming to be Christian, but somehow throwing their weight behind someone like fucking Donald Trump and still doing it, even though he's lost? Yeah. Like, what do we do with these people? And I think that something that I've heard you say that might cut to the core of this is like this addiction to certainty. Um, which is not necessarily religious, right? That's just a, that can be, you can be an atheist and be addicted to certainty. How do we get people, you know, let's say like the same way that we have an opioid crisis in America, we need to get people not addicted to drugs. How do we get people not addicted to certainty? How do we, how do we flip that switch for them? Yeah. I mean, it's a very good question and I'm afraid there's not an easy answer. I think it goes in two parts. I think there's a number of people who, if they read something by me, like, um, you know, why I'm an atheist who believes in God, or maybe heard a little bit of this podcast and got interested, they might follow it out. And then you could have some personal discussions and exchange an email or two, whatever it might be. I've had a lot of people like that, that have sort of gone in a different direction and look back and say, you know, I read your memoir, Crazy for God, and it got me thinking, and I was angry when I read it. But I, but that's nice. That's a few people. Mm-hmm. The, the, the majority of the religious right as it now stands are not going to suddenly repent and change. The problem is it's because there's no basis to argue with them on. And I know you guys will get this. Um, you know how it is, evangelicals have two spheres of knowledge. Mm-hmm. If, unless they're total loons and don't take your kids to doctors and won't get vaccinations or something. Okay, there's the, let's just say it's the normal run of the mill guy who has a job and goes to his doctor once a year, gets his prostate checked and all the rest of it. When his heart, 
specialist tells him he needs an EKG, he gets one because on one level, he operates based on science. He drives a car. None of the gasoline would have been found unless people believed in evolution enough to do the geology to find the oil well. Okay. So he lives in that world and he benefits from it. But then when he goes to church and in his family and saying grace and so forth and so on, he has a faith world. In the faith world, nothing is subject to the same sort of quantification and fact-based analysis. So if you say to him, hey, how on earth do you believe in someone raising, you know, being raised from the dead? Um, how could you believe a thing like that? Or why do you think that, you know, the miracles in the New Testament are real? Or how could you possibly hang on to a view of creationism sure. that or virgin birth. science really denies? Yeah, list goes then on and you're, on. You're, you're in an area of faith. And then it gets down to, look, this is my faith. This is what I believe. And, and that's not a knock on evangelicals. That would be the same for a devout Muslim or Hindu or sure. anybody else. Absolutely. You're now into the area of faith. Now, here's the big point I'm trying to make. And this is what my secular friends in the media, like Rachel Maddow and all those kinds of people, never seem to get their heads around because they keep asking follow-up questions as if I couldn't be serious. <laughs> right. But I'm serious now. Um, and here's the deal. What the secular people don't get because they don't know anybody like this is that when you put something in that realm of faith, it's now beyond discussion because it has nothing to do with a physics or math. It's faith. How do you know Jesus is talking to you, answering your prayers? You just know it. It's a faith thing. All right. Now, here's the deal. Evangelicals have moved following Trump and now the fact he won the election into a faith realm. It's right there with mm. the resurrection of Jesus and the virgin birth. Uh, and the which person, is why you mean there's, n- there's no basis for Trinity. discussing with them because it's not in the, in no, the real world. No, there's no realm. basis for like, you know, but this, the, the attorney general of Georgia or somewhere says it was a fair election means nothing. Yeah, there's no amount that's of like evidence. That's like someone saying, no, because that's like, that's like quoting Darwin or the New York Times to a preacher who's preaching about the creation in the Garden of Eden. And you're saying, yeah, but Darwin says, who cares what the count was? This is faith. God right. brought him into, into America for this great purpose. So what my secular friends don't get are people from secular backgrounds, because I'm pretty secular myself now, but what they don't understand is the depth of the disconnect between the faith life and then the rest of life. Mm-hmm. So Which that, I totally um, get, like in my family. Uh, in other words, if you, you know, yeah. Well, I was going to say in my family, like I have, I'm the only person in my family without a graduate degree. My dad has a master's in engineering. I have two brothers with PhDs. Right. They're all religious. So clearly they right. have separate worlds. They're not religious fanatics or fundamentalists by any means, but just from a, right. from a secular standpoint, people who are not religious are like, how could you possibly be smart enough to have a PhD in electrical engineering and also call yourself a Christian? And it's like, well, humans are complicated. And also, I mean, you, you would, would you still consider yourself a right. Christian today? I mean, you go to a Greek Orthodox no. church. Yes, I do. Well, I did before the COVID shutdown. Sure. I so, will again, probably. But, so there's because, value because I love in, the liturgy. But by. Yeah, it's complicated. Like for some people, it's yeah, but complicated. By the, definition, by the definition of the way I was raised as a Christian, I am not a Christian. By my definition, I am not a Christian either in the sense that I don't believe that Christian theology has a special angle on truth. Mm, I think yeah. that um, I. I and, and so therefore that excludes you because. I don't look at people who are not following a the- any particular theological path that I'm used in, in right. you know, interested in as somehow lost. Well, this is why or, I can't go uh, to church you know, anymore is because I, yeah. uh, I know that I would not fit into the Christian bucket. I don't believe in the physical resurrection or what, and even if it did happen, I'm still yeah. like, it doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't make Christianity the, you know, sole purveyor of truth in the universe. Um, I yeah, I mean, think- that the title of my little book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, wasn't sort of some smart-ass attempt to be clever. I was literally talking about the paradox of the fact that you can, you can admit the way you were raised psychologically, spiritually, environmentally, your family, the part of the world you're born in, when you were born, is who you are, and yet also have a part of your brain which questions it and says, yeah, but I don't believe this. Right. Um, in, in, in a sense that if I was starting from a neutral position and you presented this to me and said, do you think this could have happened? I'd say, of course not. But does that mean I don't get up in the morning and pray for my grandchildren and my children? Yes, I do. Why? Because that's how I was raised. You got a problem with that? Right. Would you like me to be somebody else? 
It's like it's like someone saying, "Why am I? You know, why are you still a white man this morning?" Uh, like, excuse me. Yeah, it's because what other what than I was given. blackface, this is what this is the hand I was dealt. Right. And so, I think you can have be totally open to paradox, doubt, and not only that, uncertainty, and realize that certainty is a killer. And at the same time, admit. But I hang on to this, this, and this for psychological reasons. I feel comfortable taking my grandchildren to a church of some sort on Sunday. Why? Because I was raised that way. Right. I find the liturgy beautiful, and I like them to have some place in their life where they're meeting people who are 98 years old when they're five years old that has something in common, and we're all here to do something. Hmm. Uh, does that mean that I think the guy down the street going to a, a Buddhist temple is somehow lost and he'd do better to come to my church? Absolutely not. If you dealt me a slightly different hand, I'd be there, right. or I'd be nowhere. So. That's not a Christian anymore in the sense of being exclusionary to other faith. Right. But it is in the sense of practice and admitting, hey, that's how I was raised. So, you know, someone says to me, how did you stay married for 50 years with all the ups and downs and all the rest of it? Well, we were very, very lucky, period. Um, and I was very lucky in the girl I married. But that said, of course, my background of, of making you feel a little guilty for fidelity, uh, infidelity, feeling that marriage is a sacred ceremony. Hey, that's yeah. who I, it's that's part who of the glue I was raised to be. Um, yeah. And, and I'm glad to have that. And I don't sit there saying, I'm not a Christian. I'm done with this. I'm going to go fuck around and, and hurt my wife's feelings. Anytime I feel like it, who care? No. Now I can make the same argument to behave the same way on the basis of empathy, evolutionary biology, neuro, uh, neuropsychology, all the same, the same truth, the things that work, work because they work, not because Jesus said it or someone else said it. It's the other way around. They work because they work. And then when someone like Jesus or Confucius comes along and says something that's in tune with the way human beings actually function best, you're not a fool if you follow that person. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's a reason why their words have such authority and they last. It's the same thing with great art or music. Something that so, you said that I think is so interesting that I would love to hear you expand on is this idea that like what Jesus brought to ideologically, what he was positioning for humans 2000 years ago was so far ahead of yeah. even where we're at right now in our timeline. Like, yes. you know, we're still trying to catch up to it. This idea of this radical yeah. acceptance, this immense empathy for others, the welcoming of like anybody for where they're at, the recognition that like anybody yeah. is going to come to God in their own way um, and not necessarily just through Jesus. Um, yeah. I think all of that is so interesting. And, and yeah, I just am curious, like your take on that as someone who, you know, ha has sort of like just been kind of stewing on this for, for decades. Yeah. Well, I think there's a tremendous power in, in the Christian message. Um, and the reason it has that power is because human beings are pattern seekers. That's how we evolved. You, you look and see where the food grows. You go back the next year and eat mm -hmm. that. That's why you don't starve to death. We're pattern seekers. We look for patterns that work. And that's how societies form. That's why we have governments. That way we have churches because you need some sort of order. Now, what works best is when that order actually matches how we evolved. And there's a huge change in evolutionary thinking in the last 15, 20 years that makes uh, things like, like Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, seem wrong and primitive now in terms of where a lot of scientists are. And that is that the new big thing is no longer the survival of the fittest. All the new studies in evolutionary biology and neuropsychology, they have a new phrase now, and that is the survival of the friendliest. Mm -hmm. And they look at the whole evolutionary chain and they realize that actually people who embrace others, yeah. who have community, who live by a certain ethic, this isn't because Jesus said it. Hunter-gatherer societies thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene or even literacy came on the scene mm -hmm. discovered that if you just grab everything and run, your village, your village dies. You know, if, if right. fathers just impregnate and leave, you know, the saber-toothed tiger gets your woman and your kid. Yeah, you you stick around and you have a community. Well, as those things became codified in religion and philosophy, the stuff that worked reflected what we already knew. And I think it seems to me, and of course I'm biased, I'm a white American Christian uh, coming at this from that enculturated angle, but it seems to me 
um, having done some reading anyway and traveling, that if you look at the sum total of the teachings of Jesus when it comes to interpersonal ethics, you have a you have a watertight list of what actually works best in life. This is how you have relationships. This is how you should run schools and businesses. Mm -hmm. This is how if governments did this, we'd be fine. And so when I say way ahead, I think Jesus formally laid out, or I don't even say I think Jesus did because I don't know who did. I think the people, what got written down as attributed to Jesus, if you really want to be picky and accurate, sure, sure. what got written down as attributed to Jesus, because we haven't a clue what Jesus said, we weren't there, happens to be a formula that is replicated in other ethical teachings as well. But I think in the case of Jesus, balances out best our need for survival, but with the need, the need for empathy as the basis of the whole thing. That's the glue. And if you lose that, everything comes apart. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, Jesus was way ahead. You know, look at Google and Facebook and the idealism they started these companies with. It all came apart in 10 years. And they right. just become greedy monsters trying to rule the world and buying up tiny companies and crushing competition. Totally. Google had, had a mantra of don't be evil and now could be viewed as one of the most evil corporations. Yeah. I mean, there <laughs> yeah, you go. So, so they, they lasted 15 years. Jesus's teachings has lasted the better part of 2000 mm -hmm. and, and is still out there as a basis that if you wrote this down, if Donald Trump followed that, if Joe Biden reads the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes every day and says, I will measure everything I do against this and live by it, guess what? It would it would work out yeah, we'd, really we'd well. We'd have a pretty kick-ass country, I think. We'd have a kick-ass country. <laughs> so he doesn't have to say I'm doing this because Jesus said it, or I'm a Christian. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if you sit down with the Google board or or uh, you know any of these guys and 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 live by their ethic, you're going to have a horrible country, yeah. uh, run by greed and power structures and and so forth and so on. So I say, you know, it's a pretty good track record, uh, two thousand year track record. I think that the, the, the most interesting thing about Christianity is that the more consistent you are to the teachings of Jesus, the better it works out for everybody. And the worst Christians, including white Republican Trump voters these days, mm -hmm. are the people who call themselves Christians and live the furthest away from the ethic. So right. I think that's a pretty solid argument for an ethic when you realize that the more consistent you are to it, the better it works for everyone around you. And the more you depart from it, the knock on evangelicals is not that evangelicalism is stupid. It's that they are no longer Christians yeah, yeah. as defined by following the teachings totally. of Jesus. And there's no way you can argue that you can't show up at the, at the Capitol with a gallows and a noose and a list of people you want to kill and storm the building, <laughs> having been gotten there on a bus oh, paid for absolutely. by your church, whatever else that church is, that's not a Christian church. What do we do with that? I mean, not even just the capital movement, but the people behind it who are sort of like, well, I wouldn't have broken any windows, but I also do think the election was stolen and like boys will be boys type. Like they're not really condemning it. Yeah. Or all of these people who you're saying, it's like, look, you call yourself a Christian, but from an ethical perspective, if you're a fucking hardcore Republican, then you're not a Christian. It's just you like aren't. you can't. And the thing you is, cannot the thing be. Is can we yeah. save these people? Can we help no, these people? Only if they will take the political realm out of the faith realm. If they look, if your average Christian in Iowa City or wherever who voted for Trump and stormed the Capitol or did or had a buddy that did and wouldn't have done it themselves, but still thinks the election was stolen. Mm -hmm. If you could just talk them into using the same cognitive template to look at the election results or whatever else they're questioning that they use when choosing a general practitioner for their family or a pediatrician for their daughter, you'd be fine. The problem is they've put politics. I don't know how, you know, you'd have to say this a million times for it to stick in. Yeah, politics in, in our, moved in the into the today. faith realm. They have put it into the realm of faith, and that's inarguable. You cannot, mm. there is no way to pierce that. That is the you know, all right. This, well, this my solution is just everybody takes 10 grams of mushrooms and uh, <laughs> try to figure it out on the other end. I don't know. Hey, it's what a fully operational, you know, I'm serious. I mean, being a little facetious, we're dealing with a fully operational Death Star. 
Yeah. There's yeah. nothing to there's nothing to argue with here. Darth Vader is on board. They have a fully operational Death Star. Well, and that's and why saying, I'm being I'm being kind be of nice. facetious, but I'm also being kind of serious when I'm just like, all of those motherfuckers have to have a mystical experience. The only way that they're yeah. going to have a mystical experience is through either five yeah. grams of mushrooms <laughs> or a shit ton of LSD, and like then maybe we can crack their minds open enough to move shit out of the faith realm when they can like have a chance to reevaluate it. Yeah, Otherwise, like, the they're personal, just, they're but, never going to do but it. But you hear scary things in terms of the mushrooms might not work. When you get this nurse's report and other reports coming in saying that there are all these white evangelical Christians who are dying of COVID-19, who are arguing with their doctors and nurses saying it's a fake sickness. They're on their deathbed. Why don't you tell me that I must have cancer? Why are you telling me I'm dying from this thing that doesn't exist? hey, you know, we're not on planet Earth at that point. There's nothing here to talk about with somebody like that. I mean, the only reason the denazification program worked from 45 on to around 1955 in Germany was because the German government, the new German government signed on and they forced people to do it. They made them go to the concentration camps and bury dead people. They made them look at the films of what it, their people had done. The villagers who had pretended they didn't know the camp was there were all made to go and see what had happened. The schools changed all the curriculum. The whole, all the textbooks were rewritten. It took a whole generation. And they did it on purpose. And I have no clue how you could have a D-Trump, D-Republican Party culting, D-sort D of cult uh, denazification equivalent in America. But you would take that. I mean, listen, in all, in all seriousness, you would have to, you'd have to strip the accreditation from all Christian institutions of higher learning. You, how can you have how can you accreditate a school that has a science department that doesn't teach science? How can you accreditate a day school that teaches children global warming isn't real? How can you accreditate uh, accr give you know this is the deal and our look there's two huge blind spots in American culture right now as I understand it. I'm sure there's more but these are two that I see. One we have a massively armed population that own military style weapons and thousands of rounds of information. <laughs> yeah. And no one has ever said, other than mass shootings and all the rest, once in a while it bubbles up. But why did anybody not ask a basic question in Congress 30, 40 years ago? What could possibly go wrong? In other words, this totally. is insane. It's like a keg, it's like a bomb, the clock's ticking, of course it's gonna go off. Militia groups shooting people, kidnapping of Governor Whitmer with armed right. guys. We almost had it at the Capitol. We almost had executions of AOC and Pelosi and all these people almost got fucking murdered at the Capitol. They were almost like this got close. Murdered. And, and if you look at the kidnapping attempt of Governor Whitmer, where the line was should have been drawn, what's with an open carry law that let those guys storm the Capitol peacefully a few months before that? Mm-hmm. Same mm -hmm. cast of characters. In other right. words, we're living in a dream world that we think this is possible and you can still have, forget Christian, just a civil society. Right, right. Then, then the other big blind spot is how can you have a whole culture geared to interpreting re individual religious liberty, which means you're not going to be shot for believing something or going to church. Now that's translated out to 501c3 corporations that can make billions of dollars, fund huge amounts of political campaigns on one hand, and then have an entire doctrination program of 501c3 radio stations, television ministries, a billionaire like Pat yeah. Robertson. And pay an no empire. fucking taxes. And no, not only no fucking taxes, all their schools get accredited and they don't teach science. They don't teach history. They right. teach that America was always a Christian country. They don't teach anything about the Enlightenment philosophers that actually shaped the American Constitution mm -hmm. through, through Jefferson and the others. So we're sitting here saying, well, we have this whole subculture. It's not six weirdos or Scientology. We're talking 60 million voters here who have gone from the time they were born to schools that only teach a false view of reality. Mm -hmm. Not a different point of view when it comes to who Jesus is, but molecular biology. Okay, that's the deal. It isn't religious liberty. It's the liberty to teach an alternative universe. Trump comes along and cashes in all this. Now these guys don't even believe in the election result. They're armed to the teeth. These two problems, an armed insurrectionist population with people like the Oath Keepers and all these other guys that have sworn to uphold you know, their vision of a Christian white America over and above the law, mm -hmm. if they're asked, push comes to shove. All these guys in the military, former military, about 25% of the people being arrested so far are either former or active duty military cops 
you know, environment. They're, they're from that, they're from that first responder group of people. Obviously this thing has come together in a way that, um, has the, the the January 6th insurrection sped up the process. Everybody's looking at this now. Where have you been? Is my question. I've been talking about this evangelical tidal wave for the last 30 years. Right. And people are saying, oh, you know, it's just personal belief. No, it's not. Right. They, it's they, they, they are theocrats. They want to create an American version of Saudi Arabia. Yep. Yeah. Frank, I'm curious. Uh, we know that, you know, you you traveled around at one point to these big conventions speaking and yeah. stuff. And you're talking about speaking about this stuff for the last 30 years, this evangelical tidal wave. So yeah. what kind of triggers you removing yourself from that evangelical movement okay i'll run through a few things in no particular order of preference first of all i was indoctrinated from very young and as soon as i got older and got married and started looking around and getting interested in the arts and filmmaking and so forth i started hearing very different points of view so mm-hmm. the first thing was just a little bit of de- of detoxification I was in I, my indoctrination began to fray because I first of all I went to a, a private school a boarding school in England for a while there were sort of different people there so seeds got some but here's the big one and this is what blows a lot of evangelical minds I began to compare the direction of the evangelical movement in America to the way I was raised in this humble little mission before my dad got famous where we're eating meat once a week because there isn't any money where dad doesn't own a car where he's sitting at the edge of his bed working on a tea tray because he doesn't have a desk that's how I was raised that's what evangelical missionary Christianity church was to me. Then I, you know, two minutes later, not literally, but it felt like it, I'm flying around in Jerry Falwell's jet, um, speaking to crowds of 16 to 20,000 people, and there's mm-hmm. more money on the book table than my, than Labrie, the entire net worth of the whole ministry yeah, you was. You were like a religious I mean, DJ in night, making like $40,000 per fucking scratch session. <laughs> yes, Exactly. <laughs> And, and, you know, and I, before that I was a folk musician sitting in my bedroom, you know, recording a few songs. I mean, I, to use the analogy. Sure. 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 (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. So the thing, the thing is when you look at my path out, it wasn't anything to do with theology at the beginning. I know this will sound weird. It was aesthetics. Sure. You're just, this was the ugliest world you could stumble into. Yeah. Yeah. Also, they were all liars. Yeah. Also, it seems like you were, you know, you were raised in this, this commune, which must have filled you with a lot of wonder about the world with the amount of different types of people that are coming in. If you're exposed to all this art culture. Yeah. And I mean, my parents, God bless them, didn't try to protect us from other points of view and so forth. And I, and by the, but when I was in Labrie and they were living a very consistent Christ-centered life in the true sense of that word, mm-hmm. non-judgmental, kind, open, inclusive, it all looked pretty good. And I, and, you know, sticking with the program didn't seem like a stretch. By the time you get into the big time American God business, it's like, you know, hey, I thought we were running a Sunday school camp here and it turns out this was, you know, Hitler youth. I mean, what yeah. the fuck is going on here? Yeah. And then and then when you sit <laughs> and then when you meet guys like Jerry Falwell and you hear how he's talking about gay people and all the rest, of course everything comes apart. And then if you start tugging at the actual threads of faith and you begin to question that, then that part of the fault. But for me, the beginning of the departure was simply that the big time American evangelical community that I was exposed to and had a leadership position in is being groomed to, you know, all this bullshit, the mantle has passed and now that he'll carry on because evangelical ministries are all nepotist. I mean, every, you know, look at Franklin Graham. I mean, his dad, Billy Graham, now he's doing this and then his mm-hmm, kids are thinking mm-hmm. his sister works there. This is the norm. Well, then the second thing was artistic aspiration. I wanted to write and make movies and paint, and I do paint, and I did write. I, I become, after I left, you know, some of my writing has been successful and, and on the merits. Um, but unfortunately, the hand I was dealt, it's like wanting to be a painter or a writer, and you, you happen to be Joseph Stalin's daughter. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter how good your paintings are or what you, novels you wrote. You're in the final analysis. You're still Joseph Stalin's daughter. Who's Frank Schaefer? Well, he's you know he was part of this family that got the religious right going, and I'm stuck with that. Now, 
for a few years, I tried to get away from that. And I sort of successfully did in the sense that people reading my novels didn't necessarily connect any dots and they weren't from that world. Mm -hmm. But I don't deny that anymore, especially in the years of Trump having played a part in getting this Right. You saw the you saw the thread. You were like, this is it started with what, you know, my own father was sort of working on, even though your father wasn't necessarily a fundamentalist right wing nuthead. He just sort of was like, hey, let's talk about abortion. And it spawned this whole other thing. Um, yeah, I want to be respectful of your time. We just have a few minutes left. And and what I would love to end with is just hearing you sort of riff on sort of your spirituality now and like you know a word to the listeners on i guess leaning into the mystery leaning into the paradox leaning into the uncertainty and sort of how you feel like that serves us as human beings and the importance yeah. of uh, of embracing that well i would i would just say two things for me that are important now um, one is just what you're talking about leaning into the paradox and the uncertainty and when it comes to personal faith and being willing to deal with the mystery of the fact that I get up in the morning, I pray for my grandchildren. I'm not sure anybody's hearing that, but it seems like a very vital part of my life mm-hmm. and, and being willing to admit that we have needs and that one of the validations of spirituality is it serves those needs. And so either there's something real there in a mysterious sense. Um, and that is my hope, Uh, or there is not. But in any case, we don't have to make any apology for being spiritual beings and have to be logical all the time. The thing is, we've got to be careful and admit this and not pretend that we have some sort of revealed truth that goes beyond our own need and and be open to the fact that other people approach that need differently. That's one thing. And the second thing Mm -hmm. is, I must say as I get older, the only thing that means anything to me in my life at this point um, plenty of things to do, but in any sense of capital meaning is my relationships with my children, my grandchildren, the fact that I do child care for three of my youngest grandchildren all the time. They and still call COVID, you Bob? You know, we shelter together. What's that? I said, do they still yeah, call they you still Bob? Yeah, they still call me Bob. <laughs> yeah, and, and what I've tried to do is is really concentrate on advising people in a way that I think will help their lives. Mm-hmm. And not just big theoretical stuff about spirituality. And that is, um, you know, if you have somebody you're in love with, stick with them and make a family. And I'm not talking about gay or heterosexual or bisexual. I mean, everybody. I don't care who you are, whether that family is a family of friends or whether it's a family of, in the sense of marriage. Um, put career second, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. You know, you're never going to get up in the morning when you're my age and say, gee, I wish I had written another bestseller. But wow, if you have a rocky relationship with a child or a parent or something, you will regret that and you want to mm-hmm. set it straight. Mm-hmm. So put the relationships and your personal relationships, your unsexy, personal, ordinary, quote, relationships are not ordinary. They are all that matters. Mm-hmm. And in the end, there's only one killer regret, and that is broken relationships in life. And so don't throw away a marriage if it's going bad. Stick with it, work at it. Of course, I don't mean beyond the point that's intolerable, but give things a chance. Don't put your career ahead of your children. Take time and be with them. Work it out. Fight with the company you work for to give you time to be home. All the rest of these things. That's the stuff that matters. And so to me, the only reason politics matters is it can help or hinder that. For God's sake, have a minimum wage of $20 an hour for everybody mm-hmm. and make it the law and free health care because that mother with two kids who's working three jobs isn't home with her children. I don't yeah. give a shit what she earns. And she'd probably be a great fucking mother. She'd be a great mother. If she's sacrificing all that for her children, that That's means she point. loves them. And, it, and, yeah. and it's on us that she has to do that or yeah. he has to do that. And you know, that father who's all about, you know, I'm 35 years old, I'm doing this big thing, I've got this corporate thing. If I move here, you know, I can go, instead of earning, you know, $750,000 a year, now they're gonna pay me a million a year and I'll move And Yes, I know I'm moving away from my parents and grandparents. Hey, asshole, you've got grandparents living across the street right now. You know where you're from. You've got children you're raising. Do you want them to have a sense of place and meaning, or is it all just about chasing the money and mm-hmm. breaking up everything again and again and again? Mm-hmm. And if you look at American culture, it's sick. We don't do childcare. 
People move in America seven, eight, nine, ten times in a lifetime. Yeah, we don't do senior care either. We're real. No, we're and real we keep changing up. jobs. And so, you know, the, if I have any time left in my life, I'm 68. I hope over a few years, COVID here and there, you know, notwithstanding, it's going to be a very low key, two front plea with people. One, embrace the uncertainty and the paradox, but deal with the fact you are a spiritual being and don't kill that. Mm-hmm. And don't look for logic within that, but just know what you're doing so you don't think you're, you know, Trump won the election, if you understand what I'm saying. Sure. Don't yeah. spiritualize that. Second, <clears throat> put the people who you love first. The only truth you will ever see in your life that is non negotiable is what's written in the eyes of the people who love and trust you. Mm. That's it. Wow. That is the end. That, that's it. That's the only truth you will ever see. Not what people who are shining, you know, selling you something or trying to get you something or admire. No, it's the, it's the, what you see written in the eyes of the people who love you when they love you. And if there's trust and there's love and there's and 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 peace there, you're doing something. If there's not, you are a fucking failure. Wow, Powerful. that's all that matters. Not your job, not what you earn, not what your profession is. And that's what I would like to tell people. Right Amazing. on. That's a. Amazing way to uh, end things. Uh, we can't thank you enough for giving us some of your time. We uh, we really hey, appreciate it and yeah. feel fortunate that we uh, just kind of stumbled upon um, what you were doing and have the opportunity to talk with you. We'll put all the links in the episode notes so people can uh, find your books and and your you have sure. so many hours and send of me things. Send me a link of where this all is. So- Oh, absolutely. And when you, when you put it all up wherever it goes, send it to me and I'll put it on everything so people can come here and watch it. Absolutely. Totally. And yeah, you've got so much stuff on YouTube for people to check out as well. Um, you're welcome to Thank come you. come join us anytime, Frank. You know, maybe we can get in a little a little <laughs> well, earlier. Well, let me back again. I've got a, I got a new book. Yeah, in November, November 2nd, I have a new book coming out that goes into what we've just talked about for the last five minutes. And I've been working on it for the last five years. And when that happens... I'll make sure, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. You get you a copy and discuss it. That'd, that'd be, be great. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Sweet. All right. But Frank. I mean, before that, if you want to talk, just email me and we'll do it again. Yeah. We'd love to have you back and maybe we can get in a little earlier on your side so we can, uh, we can have a little more time with you, but we appreciate you and we hope yeah, you have a no good problem. afternoon. Good evening. Well, thanks for the interest and your kindness and your interest in everything else. It means a lot. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Frank. Take care. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Frank Schaefer, dude. What? <laughs> dude. That was amazing. That last, I mean, I I know I was sort of like, you know, setting up the T-ball for him in terms of like, send us off with something legit. But that line about like, the only truth that matters is what's reflected back in you in the eyes of the people you love. Holy shit. <laughs> and then it's just like, and if that's not where it's at, you're a, you're a fucking failure. You're a fucking failure. <laughs> but he's so right. He's so right. And, uh, God, I really like that guy. Yeah. I we're definitely, I wish Frank would just be like a, a monthly regular. We just yes. have like Sundays with Frank. Yeah. Oh, totally. Oh my God. That was yeah, awesome. That was fucking wild. Um, yeah, I can't believe that he he. What a generous dude. He's clearly like, he's got a lot going on. He clearly tells this story of his crazy life. He's lived twenty different lives in his lifetime. He was like a you know he grew up in this commune in in Switzerland, and then he was like this like young pastor slash like kind of producer of like weird spiritual evangelical films and then he started doing like thrasher movies in the 80s (laughs) and then he's been like an author and a fucking like he's just he's in the greek orthodox church now yeah not even for religious reasons just because he's like i like that the liturgy is so ancient like it feels cool to be part of like this ancient tradition he's just such a fascinating dude and one of the truly one of the smartest he's a hard person to have a conversation with via zoom Cause he's so smart and he's so coherent and he just, once he gets a thread going, he could just, he, we could have asked him one question. He would have talked for an hour. Yeah. Which we is, didn't interject. Yeah. It's killer. Um, if people enjoyed 
what Frank had to say. Just really go go on that YouTube rabbit hole. There's so much there. And then yeah. the books. Can't, there's a bunch of I books. I can't wait. I can't wait to read some of his books. Um, yeah, I think he's just such a fascinating person and, and really um, one of the few people that I feel like that I've met that I'm just like, you feel really tapped into the like, to what it's all about. Yeah. You know? His message about sort of like, you know, I frame it as mystery. He frames it as paradox. But I think that that's great. He's sort of like, I love that message of sort of like, look, don't deny that you're a spiritual being with spiritual needs, but also don't get so hung up on it that you all of a sudden start like believing things that aren't necessarily real with certainty. Right. Yeah. I, I think he just frames things really well too. Where like, I think, you know, people can clearly understand and see what he's talking about now. Like he was talking about how, you know, the last 30 years he's been talking about his concerns about this movement. And now with something like the storming of the Capitol starts to become a little clearer to maybe people that are in the mainstream that have like no idea the amount of work he has put in to raise awareness around this. Yeah, totally. Um, shout out to Frank. Big yeah. fucking bless up for Frank, dude. Big bless up for Frank. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, send us an email. BibleBudsPDX at gmail.com. Yeah. Shoot us a question. Shoot us a thought. Whatever it is. If you shoot us an email, we will address it on the next episode. We will. We will. Um, and yeah, follow follow Frank. And shout out to former guest of the podcast, Sam Rocha, who is the um, person who had reposted that initial rant I had seen from Frank um, when the storming of the Capitol happened. And that's, mm-hmm. yeah, how we found out about him. And so, yeah, man, smoke, pray, love, everybody. Bless up. <laughs>